Yo, this is AJ Suede, the Suede God. I'm tapped in with the Fly Fidelity podcast. Shout outs to Wales. We in the building. Know what I mean? Metatron's cube out everywhere on Fake 4. Physical copies coming soon. Peace. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. Welcome to another edition of Fly Fidelity featuring special guest Seattle-based rapper and producer AJ Suede. We'll be talking about his latest release, Metatron's Cube, which is produced by Ted of Angel, formerly from Blue Sky Black Death. We'll also be talking about his early days and seminal moments, including the revelation that the baby featured in the iconic Death Squad logo was based on him. Enjoy the conversation. I wake the wind, cross over, then I break your shin. If we don't make it out, we're breaking in. I play the wind, rather make hits than make amends. I'd rather make fam instead of friends. I won't attend, couldn't follow rules or follow trends. Gotta speak my mind, I can't pretend. My dragon rent. Broke the sky rim at level 10. Supreme math counting up to 10. To do it all again. One to nine, cipher one to nine. Take a look and take it all in. We fell out so You grow up in East Harlem and experienced a time when Dipset controlled the culture. For the sake of contextualizing the time and place, can you talk about your earliest experiences through the social lens of hip hop and some of the most defining music for yourself at that period personally oh yeah i mean yo just like as far as like growing up in harlem like being like you know around the time i first started hanging out and having other people like introduce me to music obviously dipset was on fire you know what i'm saying like dipset and then you gotta understand like there was so many sub affiliates of dipset that were also like really killing shit in the street like you had like you know, Jim Jones had Bird Gang, and then there was Taliban, and then, like, so that was really super influential early on. But then, like, it kind of really shifted when Max B entered the entered the fold when I was about, like, 14 or so. So I think it was, it was really crazy to be present for all of that because most of the music was really just coming from either word of mouth, LimeWire, or people who actually were selling like physical mixtapes. You know what I'm saying? Completely different times, man. Yeah, definitely. It was cool though, because it was like $5 a mixtape, many different mixtapes. You know what I'm saying? So. Did you ever have any interactions with any of the members of Dipset as intimate as you experienced with Redman when you appeared in his video for I'll Be That? <laughs> 
Nah, yo, I'm glad you know that. But uh, yeah, so um, nah, not really. But they did shoot Killer Season on my block. The movie like that that uh Papa John's that's around the corner where he where he spit on the little girl in that scene. That's like yeah, that's like kind of right around the corner from where I grew up. You know, so like and yeah, like a lot of the B shots where they flash buildings and stuff throughout that movie is like across the street and whatnot. So that's like the closest I've really ever been in proximity, which might not be true. You know, there's a lot of like summertime basketball games, and I'm sure like they were around, like they were present, but I, I personally never really had in, any interactions with any of them. And it was a situation where you could bump into anybody at any given day in a bodega or something like that, from what I understand, right? Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. Yeah, it was crazy because it's like not even just like in Harlem, but like all over New York City, like different different uh, neighborhoods, uptown, downtown. That's just kind of how it is. There's just so many people down there. You bump into a ton of people, you know? Going back to the Redman video, Albida, what are your strongest memories of Little Lex, who of course directed the video? Yo, so the crazy thing about Little X, that's a that's a really good question. Because um that's not the only work at that time that I did with Little X. Before that, Death Squad, Keith Murray, Eric Sermon, all of them, uh, they were getting ready to work on the Death Squad album. And are you familiar with Death Squad? Absolutely. Course. So you know the logo with the kid with the hands over the ears? Yep. That's me. No way. Yeah, yo, and it's funny because it's like a yeah, yeah, it's a running joke because like I always try to like tweet at Eric Sermon, like, yo, let me get some beats, let me get some beats. <laughs> he always ignores me and shit. But yeah, that was me. So before that, little X, you know, he's director X now, like he grew into his own. That was Hype yeah. Williams, like young, young boy at the time, Absolutely. you know. And um he was putting, he was shooting the vic, the commercial, the TV spot, which this is definitely lost to time. There was a time that I had this on VHS, like just from putting the VHS in, in the TV and recording it. There was a commercial, the Death Squad commercial, where I had the DEF blocks and I was lining them up. I was like four years old. Wow. And then like I sat on top of the blocks and like put my hands over the ears and that, and then it transitioned from that picture into the logo. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. So yeah, it was cr it's crazy because you know nobody really ever asked me a question that specific about Little X. So this is like the first time I'm really getting to speak on this. But uh, a year or so later, the I'll be that video happened, right. and I don't really know how I was tied in with them. That was like my dad's connections and shit. I don't really know how um that ended up working out. But we went to go do the I'll be that video. Like one day randomly at like five in the morning, my dad woke me up and we took a we took a cab over to I don't I'm not sure where we shot that. It might have been in Jersey, which okay. makes sense. You know it's red man. And um right. yeah, there was just like a bunch of kids my age and it got to the point where they were shooting the last scene and the kid who was supposed to be in the role that I ended up filling in like, mind you, we were all five years old. Like, he kind of, like, froze up and had really, really bad stage fright. 
So they asked me if I wanted to do that scene and I was on the fence about it, you know, and uh, long story short, I ended up doing that, which is like the last part of the video. If anybody ever gets to check it, uh, to check it out, That's right. where they're shaking the cereal box and, you know, <laughs> still, got the, still got that cereal box in my mom's house. Yeah, that's legendary. You mentioned your dad. Let's talk about your mom. Let's talk about your parents. What kind of relationship do they have with music at this point and specifically hip hop? What are you listening to? What's in the background playing? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, so my parents, you know, they grew up in Harlem, both of them. You know, my dad, like both East Harlem, my dad's family is from West Harlem, though. And they went to high school together, graduated from Manhattan Center, 1986. And mind you, Manhattan Center, that's the school that Cameron went to. They showed in Killer Season. Ah. Full circle. But, um, yeah, so they graduated in 1986. And I, I always remember my dad and my mom being really, really big fans of the song Eric B. for President by Rakim. Dope. You know, so that's kind of the era that they that they were coming out of where that was like the brand new shit. It kind of, and you know, my dad is a super big Boogie Down Productions fan, huge KRS-One fan. And like, uh, they were all teenagers at a time where there wasn't so many money, so much money in hip hop. So um, it was nothing to see Dougie Fresh or Biz Markie or any of these people outside at any given point. They were still, you know, regular people, right? just star, stars in the neighborhood, you know? So they were kind of on the cusp of uh, hip hop really just being a youth culture before there ended up being a ton of money in it. So like it's, it's super, hip hop in general was just very important in my upbringing. You know, a lot of car seat music, a lot of stuff I heard before I even understood what I was listening to. We both know there's more to making it than what happens on the court. Tupac Shakur, Bernie Mac, Tanya Pinkins, Marlon Wayans. I don't care if you don't believe in me, but I'm going to make it anyway. Above the Rim, directed by Jack Pollock. This film has not yet been rated. Coming soon. Yeah, but the crazy thing also, speaking about uh, basketball in the area, uh, my mom and my dad both told me a story about how, so Tupac used to hang out in Harlem really tough. Right. And they shot above the rim very close to where my, my we all grew up at. So like I've, there's like a certain corner that we dro- used to drive past when I was younger. And like, you know, even my parents, they aren't together or anything. They both told me this story separately about how one night they just seen Tupac right on this corner hanging out around the time they were shooting above the rim. You know, so they hit the 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 relationship between basketball and hip hop, especially in New York City, is very important. You know, when it gets yeah. down to Rucker Park and the entertainment, uh, entertainers basketball classic and the Dykeman games, and it's all kind of one thing. You know, crazy, crazy. So when you yeah. were started to make music, fast forward, of course, because you're you're young at this point. What would have been your touchstone influences that inspired you to actually want to make music? Oh, shit. I mean, so, like, for fun, like, beforehand, before I even, like, obviously, you know, being young, like, I don't play ball, but there was a time where I was active, and, like, most kids, you know, I want you want to go to the NBA, or you want to be a rapper, and it's, like, kind of, those are, like, the images that were kind of, like, being fed 
to us at the time, right? So, like, in the back of my head, you know, everybody kind of wants to be a rapper, like, being young, like, freestyling, having little fake battles, 11, 12, this, that, and the third. So, like, what influenced me to do that, but, like, which is separate from what influenced me to want to take it serious, which came, like, way down the line, which is kind of, like, you know, I, I got I to gotta say just, like, Dipset, the people I was around, right. and, like, also how, like, at, the, at those times when it came to, like, jacking for beats, those Dipset beats were super easy to get. Like, you know, like, I'm ready, who am I, I really mm. mean it. Those are just, like, a line wire search away, mm. you know? And then, like, through that rabbit hole, I started finding, like, the Ninth Wonder beats. You know, I went down that Ninth Wonder rabbit hole of LimeWire and YouTube beats and just, you know, write, writing a lot of trash to it until, like, a, over time it got way better. Well, let's talk about you getting better over time. Could you take me through defining and finding your style? And in 2015, I guess, would have been a foundational year in your growth, wouldn't it? A year in which you released seven projects, most of which were collaborations with different producers. Talk about that growing period for you in 2015. Yeah, so 2015 was one of the first years that I was living on my own. Mind you, it was me and my friends. We all had a spot. And, like, uh, there was just a lot going on. It was just more so, like, that's when I finally had that mindset. It's like, uh, you don't hunt, you don't eat. So, like, I was spending a lot of time, like, working and, like, taking that money that I made, like, after rent and trying to, like, work with producers that I had really fucked with at the time. And that was also, like, a, a real transitional period as far as the game is concerned, too, because... SoundCloud was kind of starting to emerge as like being the force that it was at that time, you know, because like I was coming off of like kind of messing with Mishka and using Bandcamp back then and having visuals and whatnot. And I think that once I kind of got in the groove of what SoundCloud was doing, that I kind of felt reinvigorated because I don't know, for some reason, I thought that that repost feature was really dope. Like, it wasn't like I was kind of playing to, like, the same 500-person crowd all the time. Like, I had a chance for shit to kind of spread out and discover and, like, people who wouldn't even know me, like, find it. So I think that uh, just off that inspiration alone, I started kind of going crazy. Like, it's like putting in all this work at a time and then, like, actually getting to the point and being like, yo, like, people outside of, like, my bubble are going to start finding this. Right. You know, even though people were at a time, but it was just like it kind of felt like for a second that I hit a brick wall. But once I felt like I had a way to knock it down, I just kind of kicked into overdrive. And I had a lot of fun too. So that, that's also what helped it. So there's a distinction between the way music traveled once you found that repost function you're talking about on SoundCloud. Yeah, for sure. Because before that, it was like, you know, over time, you you generally build up your following on these social media networks and then, you know, there's websites and blogs that had a lot of power back then. And it, it was, you know, it was super political. It was like you you kind of hope to make great music and have one of these writers find it at, at this time, you know. And then uh, that would happen from time to time. But it just felt like it was cool because you got to, with SoundCloud, a, a little bit more, you got to bring it directly to the people. And then the people kind of got to bring it to their people. Right. 
Yeah, so I really kind of appreciated that because that broke me out of the mold of what I was doing. It's like, you know, you release, then you promote and promote and shoot a video and promote. And I kind of felt like I could just have fun and drop as much music as possible and kind of just let it go and know that it was going to travel. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned Mishka, Mishka, Rava. How does the situation with Mishka come about, which, of course, for anybody listening that doesn't know, is a streetwear company that was collaborating back then for projects with a lot of underground artists, including oh, yeah, including Mr. Motherfucking Esquire on this project, on this new album. Yes, um, sir. We're, we're talking about an era when music, like you said, traveled a lot differently than the way it does today. How does that situation come about back then with Mishka? Well, like, so the crazy thing is when I first ever seen the logo was when Stiley, you remember Stiley with the beard? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, Stiley had dropped an album with them. And, like, prior to that, I was super into the um, the whole DD-172 currency, ski beats, 24-hour karate school thing that was going on down there with Damon Dash. Mm. You know, so like I was following all of those artists religiously, Currency, Smoke Dizza, Stali, JLet, and Stali had dropped an album with Mishka. And that was the first time I seen them, senior year of high school, completely unrelated, you know. So then graduate high school, I'm making music. Mishka starts popping up more and more, being like attached to a lot of these projects that I'm really messing with. One of those being uh, Lost in Translation by Mr. Motherfucking Esquire. Mm. Amazing album, Crazy. you know, and like, the thing about that that I also really love was like the way he reinterpreted some of those Cannibal Ox beats that I love so much and with LP's blessing, you know, which is important. Yeah. And then uh, Main Attractions, 808s and Dark Grapes. Shout outs to Squatter. He's on Metatron's Cube too. Had to bring it full circle, you know. So it was like the Mishka situation as far as like the music that was being dropped at the time, they wanted to cut an edge and it was just like, that was kind of all the music they would release in from X to Dosh Racist to Main Attractions to mm. a plethora of stuff. So tons of great releases. If anybody ever gets to go on their band camp, that was really like a goal of mine. It was like getting that theater interview, you know, like at that time, at least to get an album through Mishka Records, which I eventually did, like, you know, later down the line. But on the physical side of that, you know, uh, I was living in Pennsylvania for a little while and I ended up moving back to New York and I was 18, 19 and I was down there all the time. You know, Williamsburg was like Williamsburg, Brooklyn was like at the height of this like hipster pitchfork ass shit that was going on where all the fly shows that I was and all, all these dope artists that I was always reading about were literally doing these shows in the physical. So I was all over it, you know, like small shows at the Mishka store. And um, 285 Kent, the flat, like some of these places I don't really think are around anymore. But um, tons of shows going on, tons of different genres and overlap of genres, tons of artists from different corners playing shows together. So like it was just really crazy to be there in person and like actually see some of this. And then over time, you know, like because I, I was rapping back then and I was getting posted on their blog from time to time some people did know me, you know, like I was a younger dude, but I was always like had access to a lot of rooms and like a lot of places. And it's like really crazy because it's like I, I highly doubt they remember it. But like Dapwell from like Dosh Racist and like Lakutis and Despot, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, 
which congrats, they got a show on HBO, which is like the crazy, any, which is like dope, you know what I'm saying? But uh, dapping them used to kind of like, I'm not trying to get them in trouble, sneak me into shows. I was 18, but I was like a fan and they, a lot of these shows were 21 plus. And I think they would just kind of recognize me as being like a young kid and just kind of like help me get in. You know what I mean? Nobody would serve me alcohol or anything, obviously. And uh, same with like Despot who used to run Santos Party House back in the day, which I think he ran that with Andrew WK, if I'm not wrong. You know what I'm saying? He was going to help, like, just, it was just a really crazy time because I was like such a super fan and I got to kind of be around all of these people and, and soak it up. So I just think that Mishka, that whole 2011 to maybe 2014 era, they were like kind of up there with a lot of these other outlets that were champion, championing super creative music, you know? So that timeline becomes this point in time for you where it's an access point for you to experience live shows. You're experiencing a lot of underground shows, some of your favorite artists. Let's talk about yeah. this album specifically. The story goes that the earliest conception of left-handed Virgo changed every other week for about a month. What are your strongest memories writing and recording that project? Oh, man. So I think the thing with that album was... Uh... So, like, prior to that, I was doing most of my beats on FL Studio. Okay. Fruity Loops, you know, at that time. But I think that with Left Handed Virgo, that one was kind of a gamble because I was, I think I, I had a brand new process for that. Most of it was made on a keyboard. It was 100% sample free. There might be, like, vocal or, like, TV rip samples in there, but musically it was all sample free. Uh, and I played out everything on... Um, the piano, including the drums. And I think it was like kind of my attempt at a super musical album at that point, but it was all like experimental. I, I feel like I didn't really know what I was doing in the early stages of that album until I did. Like I kept just kind of experimenting with sounds and playing shit out. And then it just kind of worked out over time. But the reason why there was so many different drafts is because I was kind of learning in real time and yeah, it just took a couple of different drafts. So I got it to the point of where I want it. But yeah, it was like, it was like a different one every two, three days. Cause especially at that time, I, once you got me in working on something, I kind of had that mentality. Like I have to finish this cause I could like step outside and get hit by a bus, you know, knock on wood, but I have to finish this shit. So I just be locked in until I got it to where I needed it to be. You're in the trenches. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I was in my mom's house. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a producer at that time, can you speak to any moments that, that you credit for being some of your earliest lessons as a producer from studying greats like Mad Lib and Dilla? Oh, yeah, that was even, yeah, so like, I got, I started getting into that because I was playing Tony Hawk's Underground 1 and 2. And Tony Hawk's Underground had Cannibal Locks on it. There was Bus Drive on it. It was crazy. Like That's I was crazy. trying to a lot of music. Yeah, I know. And I was I was super young too. So like I'm sitting here absorbing all of these songs without really understanding the significance. Right. And then when you get to like uh, Tony Hawk's Underground too, there's Handsome Boy Modeling School, and then you got Dell on there. So I was definitely getting into a lot to that corner of rap super duper early, and that eventually led me from like Def Jukes to Stone's Throw to uh. I was fucking with Baby Grand, MySpace Days, 
because uh, Havoc from Mob Deep dropped an album on Baby Grant. And I, I'm super into reading all the credits and the Wikipedia pages and the liner notes. Mm. So, yeah, eventually that brought me to Mad Lib and Dilla. But I think when I when it came to, like, making beats at first, especially when you don't know what you're doing or you, you're, you're developing a style or, like, understanding, kind of, like, putting your stamp on what you do, there's a lot of uh, calculated risks and good accidents. You know what I'm saying? So the influence from Mad Lib and Dilla were there subconsciously, but in conjunction with like LP and the heat makers and uh blockhead. Cause I was fucking with labor days and I was super hyped to go from the element of music that I grew up on and discovering that there was all of this different kind of rap music out there that didn't just fall into the same category of everything that I was listening to. So I kind of paid tribute to both those worlds, like not without even trying just cause they're super influential on me. But I, I still think that like the, the style of beat making or the beats that I was trying to kind of make was a little bit in the middle of, at that time, would be like a track, uh, a, a heat makers to Dylan and Madlib, just right in between it. And it's also super coastal too, because it's like, Madlib, for some reason, Oxnard, California produces a lot of really great producers. Mm, mm. I don't know if it's like just something in the water. You know what I'm saying? Like, shout outs to Ono, Body Bag Ben, Mud. Like, this is just, but I think that they also kind of have this stamp that's that's super different. So, I don't know. I think just taking all of, taking all of those influences that I have and just taking a lot of calculated risks. And I think that's still kind of the process that I follow today. You never really know what you're going to get. What about lyrically? Would you go as far to credit your music you haven't produced yourself for giving mm-hmm. you a space to elevate your craft as a rapper versus your music you've self-produced? How much has that music pushed you as a lyricist? Yeah, that's a really good question because it's, 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 that's I think that's 100% true and I don't have to really worry about... the. I think when I make the beat, I attack, I attack it differently lyrically. It, I might more so go the route of trying to put together complete songs you know, like have there be song structure just because I know the ins and outs of the beat as I'm making it. But when I sometimes when I get just a lot of great beats, it just gives me the chance to I don't have to divide that energy. I could put it 100 percent towards rapping. So those those albums do tend to be a little bit different and a lot more wordy. And I think that I take those chances when I get to rhyme on somebody else's beats to just spaz out, you know, bar out. And finagling, waiting to run the door Sway God You already know what time it is Got camouflage monk in the building See Pain of complaints, gonna leave some bridges burnt like a mob initiation when you're burning the saints. Houses to paint, you smoking, but the odor is faint. Quiet as fuck, you be microwaving, I'm baked. Put my record on the rocket, cause it's going to space. Something hot inside the pocket, I deposit a chase. Work at my pace, or I won't be working at all. Up in my face, other forces getting involved. Problems get solved, but I always try to prevent. When it's resolved, weirdos try to straddle the fence. Tattoo and temp, 
battle in Seattle with temp Quiet is kept, if we start a riot exempt Held in contempt, not the court that dribbles the ball Building the wall, hope your little movement will fall Answer the call, better or don't call me again Or call me your friend, people name dropping pretend I used to rob Peter paying Paul When niggas was playing ball Just finessing and finagling, waiting to run the door well, speaking of other beats, what can you tell me about your collaborations with Blood Blixen and Camouflage Monk? Ooh. Yo, man, you're, you're dope, bro. You really, you know, you. this is why I love when you, it was a point where, you know, people would try to ask me to do stuff from time to time. And it's the same cut and dry questions. But these are great questions. But um, Blood Blixen, I, just, I found Blood Blixen's music. I stumbled upon it on youtube because i listen to like the bulk of my music on youtube as full albums like start to finish and shit like you just got to listen to the whole thing and blood blixen had a ton of projects on there and for some reason i just really thought uh his beats were raw he had a lot of really crazy beats and i liked his imagery and i think it's just really gritty and raw and um I don't know. One day I just like, I like to give props where they do. So I reached out to Blood Blixen one day and was just like, yo, I fuck with you. And that's like, you know, when I do that to people, it's not like I'm expecting anything in return. I'm not trying to like leverage anybody into collaborating. But I think that around that same exact time, Blood Blixen might have just started getting familiar with me. So, you know, he sent me a beat. And the thing with me and like doing projects with full producers is because I think, I think sometimes I tend to overthink myself about cohesion and, being cohesive and volume levels and this, that, and the third, that it makes it really hard for me to do projects with a whole bunch of different beats in one. You know what I'm saying? Like I always kind of tend to just have something where like a producer might be in charge of the vibe for that one. Everything is kind of produced within the same sonic space, if if that makes any sense. So uh, it went from a uh, blood blitz and sending me to one beat and then I knocked it out. And then he sent me another one and another one. And that ended up being my first project of the pandemic. Like I had time on my hands. So I might've knocked that out in two days. It was just like six, six or so tracks. And I was already writing and working how I usually work. So that project ended up uh, coming to fruition, Dark Brotherhood. And it's like, the thing about that one is that that was also like me learning in real time from just going and dropping a project straight on Bandcamp and not necessarily worrying about all the the bullshit that comes with the DSPs and mm. having to upload it and wait 10 days and all of that stuff. We just kind of just gave it to the people as soon as it was done. And then from there, he still hits me up to like, you know, I give him, I'll not give him, but we collab on a lot of stuff for his projects too. Cause he's kind of like an A&R. He'll do the thing where he like Marcy Buku's a whole album where it's just like a showcase for his beats. And he raps on a couple songs, but there's like tons of guest features and shit is dope. So I get to learn about a lot of different people that way. Dope, dope. We've been talking about growth throughout this conversation. I'm curious, has there ever been a point within your craft where you've found yourself battling with the distinction between hope and expectations? Yeah, I mean, definitely at a time maybe when I'm, you know, when I, I'll say when I was a little younger in the game. Right. But it's mostly, I, I think that you can't really, having expectations in any situation, you might be setting yourself up for failure. It's the same thing kind of like with uh, compliments and the opposite. 
that if you like put too much stock in the comp- compliments when somebody might not like your work, you might feel bad about it. It's like you kind of got to just like take it all with a grain of salt. Mm. And I think that setting expectations is a good way to disappoint yourself and make you forget why you're in the game in the first place. Like a lot of people, I think, might quit or slow down their output because they work super hard on something or what they might believe is super hard on something. And then when they drop it, it doesn't meet their expectations. And next thing you know, they're discouraged or, uh, you know, they lose a little bit of love for the game. And I think that at a time I might have thought that way, even though I don't really, you know, I think that I don't really get too disappointed in that aspect. That's why I keep dropping. Like I'll work, I'll try to work equally hard on every project. And if it doesn't get the response that I want, it's like, it's all good. I'm getting back in the lab. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I think that having unrealistic expectations for an artist in general is a good way to set yourself up for failure. You just got to kind of remember why you're in the game and keep throwing shit at the wall and keep trying to have as much fun as you was having with it as when you first started. Well said. That's great advice for anybody listening, putting in the work right now and on the come up. Can you talk about your creative space and mindset navigating as an artist over the past two years specifically? Has there been any challenge with quarantine of not oversaturating your audience with as much music as they used to getting from you? Uh, nah, it's just really crazy. I, I think I got to put some of those restrictions on myself because I, I do that just because I have that much fun making music and it's what I do. But I think that with quarantine, I was getting in the space that I might have been making too much music. And when it came time between the last two projects, Avada Kedavra and Metatron's Cube, that I was just trying to real life it really hard. Because if I don't have the same amount of life experience, I, I got to charge up on life experiences to be able to have that much raps. And when stuff started kind of getting stagnant, I didn't feel like I was... Uh, there wasn't enough variety in my bar so i took a second to like sit down and you know just real life it a lot and and get back to it and stop you know not like a break but i just had to recharge my creative juices you know for lack of a better word yeah yeah like you say gain some experience for what you're going to talk about what you're going to make a track about an album about yeah exactly you know especially like you saw about these last two years it was it was to the point where it was like the social interactions were super limited. Um, the routine was very repetitive and limited. The the routes that I took from point A to point B were repetitive and limited. You know what I'm saying? So I had to kind of like sit back and wait until I kind of broke out of that mold a little bit more just to like add some variation because I felt like for a second that I took I had all of that all of those interactions and experiences pre-pandemic. And I might have tapped them out after I reached however X project that I dropped within that period of time. Mm. So mm. took that break before it was time to get back to like Metatron's cube. What are your thoughts on Long May We Reign in this moment right now, knowing that it's had a space to breathe? For anybody who doesn't know, this is a project recorded in the midst of the protests in Seattle in 2020. How do you reflect on that project with a distance in this moment? Yeah, I think that was a super interesting time and it showed, I think it showed me who a lot of people were because, you know, like, I think that 
you know, anybody familiar with the situation in Seattle during that time, there was tons of different protests. There was Occupy protests. And in my opinion, there was a lot of performative activism that was kind of going on. And I think that in retrospect from that period of time, I think I took that record to kind of speak some of the stuff that was on my mind without like just trying to speak what was on my mind without trying to do it. I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. There was a lot of posts and a lot of protest posts and a lot of stuff like that that I felt like people were doing look a certain way or for clout or to pander or to act like they care about the situation instead of letting the action speak. And that people were taking a lot of the protest situations as social events and photo ops and opportunities to take pictures. So it got to the point that I sat that out and I was like, let this let, let me just speak what's on my mind away from this situation. Cause mind you, I was out there like in a, in a, for a little bit and like protesting and you know, dodging tear gas and people I know getting hit with rubber bullets and all types of stuff. Like, you know, if you think about if you think about it, like I probably might have seen it in that period. But it got to the point that I felt like there was something really disingenuous going on and I sat it out. And I did what I did best and I just got to work on that, you know, so like in retrospect, I think that like any project I drop, it's a great representation of the time that it was dropped in. But um, a lot of those values with a lot of those people who were around for those photo ops and whatnot wasn't consistent with how they were moving at that time. So I think that that album might be a good reminder to some of those people, too. Absolutely. We're talking about time capsules, aren't we? Yes, sir. I think that, that that's kind of what I do. And I think that's where anybody who like just raps about the day to day, you just always kind of know exactly where and when certain bars are in season, you know? talk about this brand new album metatron's cube how do you connect with and i hope i'm pronouncing this right because i remember the producer as a young god is it televangel yep. televangel how yeah. did you connect for this album metatron's cube well yeah you know blue sky black death super important uh production duo uh had i think they would they've, they've had many chapters in their career they go from that whole baby grand Tang affiliate gene gray era up until the cloud rap the quote-unquote cloud rap era and then tons of very expansive discography with nacho picasso who's a legend in seattle so it was just um televangel me and televangel i've been familiar with all of those people for a super long time also going back to the the mishka era and uh around the time that blue sky black death had disbanded i was always in touch with young god and um he would send me beats from time to time. And cause we, there's a lot of people like a lot of my homies from Seattle and UDF and whatnot have a lot of work that go back to Blue Sky Black Death 
especially this group called Skull and Bones from that era. And uh, yeah, me and me and uh, Televangel just started working a lot. And it got to the point that he would send me a ton of beats, but I was also working on my stuff and he was working on his stuff. So from time to time, we would exchange stuff through the internet. So like there's a couple songs on that that made its way to Metatron's Cube that are, those verses are from 2019, you know? And uh, they got to the point that like we kind of, I'm not going to say procrastinated, but we waited till we had all our stuff settled because he has his own projects going on too. And I, I went down to Portland to go work on a whole album. You know what I'm saying? So it was just like, just a matter of just kind of, I feel like I'm kind of carrying on that torch in, in, in a way for what Blue Sky Black Death means to Seattle, you know, in that chapter of it. And then this album was a good opportunity to, to kind of mix all of those errors of Blue Sky Black Death because, you know, there's the, the East Coast, more traditional sounding beats. And then there's stuff that's a little bit more abstract. There's stuff that's atmospheric, stuff that's, you know, I'm always going to say, quote unquote, cloudy, you know. So I think that between both of us, we just we were there through a lot of those errors. Mind you, this is like a 10-year period as far as, like, they go back farther than that. But this was a good chance to flex all of those influences and all of those different errors and kind of just do what we both did best. And I don't think that we planned. Obviously, you want to make the best piece of work that you can possibly make when working with somebody. But it got to the point that we were working on song after song, and we were kind of just like, damn, this is this is crazy, you know? And it does encapsulate these errors you're talking about this 10-year run it feels like the musicality and the lyricism going into this project is from a place that's very much in the atmosphere of seattle how, how do you achieve that yeah i don't i think it's, it's really crazy i think that seattle kind of creates an environment to i think yeah the the environment kind of does have an effect on the content just because it's just like the the atmosphere and the gloom of Seattle this time of year, and then like the extreme sun in the summer. And it's just, I don't know, it's really, I guess you guys might be able to relate a little bit because the UK is along like the same kind of longitude, latitude line, you know? Right. Super, super wet, super rainy. And, you know, I love the rain. And I think that uh, it's a, it's, it's a place where it, uh, you you take a lot of walks and very introspective, a lot of time time and space to think. And, you know, you kind of in that time, as opposed to like New York, which is super duper busy and there's always something going on and there's, you see a thousand people a day. It's like the complete opposite. So I, I feel like in, in a way I got to just hone in on the skills that I already have as opposed to like, I just got to magnify what I was already good at just by having that space to work at the rate that I work. So all of these projects that I've done in the period of time of being here, I got to kind of, you know, actually cement what I think is my style. Hmm. And by the time we were ready to work on Metatron's Cube, through all of that work on my other projects, it just came to fruition like as great as it possibly could. What are you looking for when you hear a beat? Was there anything you asked to be reflected in the sonics for this album, knowing you know how layered Tell of Angels sound can be? 
No, nah, but uh, usually I, I like to think that I don't know what I'm looking for until I hear it. Like, especially when it, when you make beats and, and, you know, you chop samples or people send you a ton of beats. Sometimes somebody might ask you that exact same question. Like, yo, what type of beats are you looking for? And I'll always just be like, I don't really know what type. I don't know what I want until I hear it. I might hear something in the first 10 seconds and be like, yo, that's it. And yeah, Televangel is super layered. But a lot of those beats that I got before, like they're the same beats, but there's the final versions have way more layers added to them. So a lot of that I didn't even expect. Like I'd hear the final versions myself and, you know, I hear the skeleton of the original beat that I rapped on, but then there's so much more. So a lot of these final versions were brand new tracks to me too. And some of the songs like Wake the Wind and Rubies, those weren't the original beats. Master Shake, those weren't the original beats, you know? So a lot, it, it was really crazy because I knew how musical and how layered Televangel is as a producer. But when I got the final uh, beats back, I'm like, shit, yo, these beats, like, I don't even, I, for a second, a very quick second, I was like, yo, I don't even want to make beats anymore. <laughs> <laughs> how different was the beat for Ruby's, the original beat? Oh, yeah, it was way different. Uh, I don't even really know how to explain it. Yeah, but the yeah. thing is, Ruby's, even that final version, there's like four different versions of Ruby's. And that final version, so the beat the beat switch, when it's when the beat switches at the end and goes to the second beat, that second beat was the third version of Ruby's. That was the third one. And that ended up just becoming half of the final version. The first half was brand new. Like I heard that, like for a second, I wanted to cut Ruby's. Just because I'm super into like, you know, like not having like quantity. It's like it's a blessing that this tape even made ended up being 13 tracks because I'm super critical of myself. And I was trying to act shit left and right. And Televangel was just like, nah, this D sound really good. And I just trust him just because I'm a fan of tons of his music. So if he's like, yo, this shit is super good. I'm just going to be like, all right. But I was willing to cut Ruby's and then he sent me what would be the final version, probably the fourth version of Ruby's. And it had that beat. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, this is it. But they all sound vastly. All those beats sound vastly different from each other. Even like Wake the Wind. I can't even describe it because obviously there's like a sample element to it. But he's still like a musician where he's playing the keys and the bass lines and being played out on keyboard. So they're all the process for those beats and my, to me seem like it's a similar process, but they're all so different that I, I wouldn't even be able to recreate any of those. But I did learn a ton of stuff just being in the room, watching how some of those drinks were made. And that's kind of also why like on the way back, I'm just like, shit, should I just keep trying to sharpen my rapping and say fuck beats? But I was, but that's, that was like a five sec. That was a fleeting thought. What is it you did learn? What have you learned about maintaining a sense of fluidity in this creative atmosphere making this project? I think it was just cool because that's like kind of the opposite of my, pro my process. I think I'm super minimal kind of in like everything I do. Right. Like uh, I have... I'm, I'm one of those rather have four quarters than 10 dimes kind of people, you know, I got, I have a lot of fly shit, but I have like minimal fly shit, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that that might've, that process in those two or so days down in Portland were like a course in, I'm not going to say maximalism because that makes it sound like there's too much, 
But I think that Ian Televangel attacks the beat not from the standpoint of rap music. It's just music in general. Mm. It kind of reminds me of like Jethro Tull and like Rush. Like it's like Prague. You know what I'm saying? And it's it's not like you know, there's there's a chain every four to eight bars, something new is introduced. And that's not an easy thing to do because somebody, the average person could try to do that and every 10 to eight bars give you something that doesn't fit with the song or has no business being there. And I think that he's really good at just, it's like, to me, as I'm saying, to me, it's like Prague. It's like, it just keeps on going and it keeps on changing. And then, you know, you hear a sound there, you hear something new every time you listen to it. And that takes like a great uh, amount of patience and detail. And I think that that's something that I learned because I was super fixated on, I love like kind of the minimalist aspect where it's like, I have enough going on in the beat, but I have all of this room to let my vocals shine. Whereas I was able to take that and add it to a backdrop. And it felt like I had a band behind me the whole entire time. So dope, so dope. What's so interested about your work is there's such a stylistic shift and turning point in every project I've heard from you. So much that it feels like, in a sense, every project you've dropped could be your first project. What does this chamber mean to you? Do you do you feel like it's, in a sense, a debut album for you? Yeah, I, in a way. It's crazy because, like, you know, the joke about debut albums is, like, how many a lot of us have. Right. And, uh I think that, yeah, in a way it kind of is because a lot of the stuff that led up to this point got me to this point, you know, like a lot of, I'm not going to call all of those projects that I put a lot of time into practice, but it's just like when you're in the position of being a creative that's trying to get better and better and better, you just keep setting yourself up for the next move. And I think that this was a project that reached a lot of people who wouldn't have been familiar with me. But on the other hand, with all of those projects, I try to make sure, especially when I reach out to other producers, they all bring something different to the table and they all unlock different pieces of my flow. And it it makes me challenge myself and it makes sure also for myself and the standard that I set for myself that I'm not going stagnant. I look for those types of beats that kind of make me want to try different types of flows or just continue to go hard and not like not let, allow myself to fall off what's going on if you are still listening to this episode and enjoying a podcast why not become a patron of fly fidelity at patreon.com slash fly fidelity becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week it also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter you'll be able to access exclusive content to you including patron updates offers and discounts a monthly secret podcast early access and so much more Speaking of being on the same wavelength as everybody else, when it comes to support systems in independent hip-hop, for the longest time, Fake 4 have been setting this benchmark for how a label should treat and work with their artists. What what kind of insight and advice did you get from Fake 4 going into making and releasing this album? Well, no direct advice uh, per se, but Cheshki 
just as a person is an, is a, is amazing you know seeing him live seeing his interactions with the people who love his music isn't like just leading by example like that is all the advice that i kind of need just uh not feeling too so you know not being having as many accomplishments as him and spending most of the show off the stage and down with the people i think is a is a metaphor for a lot of stuff you know and i think that uh fake four is a, is able to thrive because they're genuine and they love what they do and the artists that work with them like i have nothing but good things to say it just it just comes from a place of love and i think that that's amazing when a lot of things just come down to like the paper, they're willing to just like, you know what I'm saying? With a lot of other people, fake four is willing to like take that chance on people. They are willing to take a chance on me. Definitely. And they, they, you know, they, I, I've met Chesky and I've been to his shows and, you know, I definitely think he's an amazing performer, but him and Televangel also have a relationship that goes back. So it was just like, at first, I'm sure like we knew that we were going to do this with Fake Four. Like we were working on a project here and there. And then Televangel had told me that he had told Chesky just like in passing that we were working on something. And then when I seen Chesky when he came to Seattle, he was like, yo, I heard you two are working on something. I'd love to hear it, you know. And then by the time we finished, that was that, you know, so it was just real organic and happened Without, I, I didn't expect it to happen, but I'm glad it did. And the rest is history, of course. What could you tell me about recording three hours late? Oh, so yeah, I recorded three hours late in my old spot before they raised the rent on me to $300, which meant leave. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but yeah, I recorded that like as I was in the process of leaving that place and moving to my new one. And I sent it over, like I, I recorded that one at home and sent it, like obviously when I got down there, I wanted to re-record everything. But the crazy thing about it is that going back to cohesion and all of that, even though like one thing I learned is that that's not always, thinking that way is super limiting. As an artist, if I'm always kind of trying to have everything be cohesive all the time, I was like, yo, I don't um, know if I want this song on the album, which was crazy. That was one of those songs that was willing to ask. And then he convinced me not to. And then eventually the other verses came and made that song even greater than it already was. So it was just like, and it's crazy because the features being Chesky and Sam Herring, they can all relate. These are musicians that tour and travel. Right. And you understand that it's like why, why you're grinding and you're away from home or in a spot that helps you be more productive you you miss out on a lot of things and it's a sacrifice but it's not enough um, and i'm not trying to word this incorrectly it's not enough of a sacrifice that i'm rushing back home mm. you know like it's hard to explain but it like it, it feels bad from time to time to miss a birthday and you know like to be a little bit late to a family member having a new kid or a wedding or but you just know that you're dedicated to this grind yeah. And that is going to pay off, you know, like you have that type of unwavering faith that you're in the places in the place or places that you're supposed to be. And, you know, once this work is complete, we're going to make up for all that lost time. We're talking about blood, sweat and tears, man. Yep. Reaper feels like a particularly important track for you, man. Yeah. Talk about that. Reaper was one of those tracks that was first worked on in 2019 
And I think a lot of those, like, it's like one of those songs where it's like, and kind of like in the form of a top time capsule, if I'm talking about any very specific topics and any type of song that might be something that I'm reading a lot about at the time or like doing research about at the time. So I was making tons of references to like letter agencies which I'm, you know, I call them the letter agencies. I don't like really using any of the letters because I feel like it might trigger something in one of our phones or one of our laptops. And next thing you know, our whole conversation is being monitored. If it's not already, if it already already isn't, like not like to the point that I got a tinfoil hat about it. Like I'm not worried about any of these people, but I just, I'm not really interested in adding insult to injury. You know what I'm saying? But uh, I think I made references to just, you know, letter agencies, mortality, false flag operations just you know business as usual especially in, in america you know so and how all that kind of affects us or it affects the little people and this is prior to young dolph dying oh so the crazy thing about it so i re-recorded that that was that got re-recorded i had wrote that in 2019 but the morning that i was on my way to portland i got the news that dolph died so that and that was the first song that I recorded when I got there. So I just kicked it off, you know, rest in peace, young Dolph. You know what I'm saying? So that was on that same exact day that we started working on that album. I had got news that young Dolph died, unfortunately. Attention, hyperextended finger, my index, my big been blessed. Paint a brighter Pinterest, the more to get interest. Your spite will suffice if only for one night. Don't got no flight, Royce White. Different opinions on aesthetic, but consensus is your boy's nice. Control your line of succession to bar phrase, your only hottie skill in What about Watch Out with Prem Rock? How does that come about? He is an artist like you whose job in the service industry was impacted by COVID. What kind of exchange did you have with Prem Rock about this track in this direction specifically? Shit. I mean, yo, so the crazy thing is I was joking about, like, yo, prior to even hearing this beat, because the beat that we ended up using wasn't in, like, the new packs of beats. I went back through my email, like, a year and found it and was like, shit, how did I overlook this one? But I was joking about how... I had made a tweet joking about how if I make a beat with sleigh bells, I'm going to export it to the recycle bin. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> there's just like all like that 80, 80s rap where they wasn't using hi-hats and they were using a ton of sleigh bells in this place. And I think that Watch Out is, is an example of sleigh bells on a hip-hop beat sounding fly. You know what I'm saying? Like The sleigh bells are on it. It's not corny. Beat is fire, you know? And... When it came to the point to decide who was going to get one, which beat and which feature, I think that that one was important to Premrock. And I think, yeah, you know, like like myself, Premrock's a bartender. I'm a cook, I, I, like part-time, but I like to fake Jack that I'm a chef, even though I'm not. That takes like a ton of schooling. But like, yeah, you know, it's like um, from time to time, it could be, it's, I think being somebody who is a rapper, uh, an acclaimed rapper, not just myself, like Prem Rock as well, to go, you, you get a ton of accolades, you know that you're dope, 
but then you go to work and then, you know, you just regular person interacting with the regular people, not regular, we're all regular, but you just like a, you know, you just interact with people. People might not realize that the night before you played a show to 500 people, you know what I'm saying? But it keeps you grounded. And I think that um, I'm super thankful that I got to spend so much time that I wasn't one of those kids that struck gold at 18 music wise, got on, never got any chances to develop a skill, any people skills, uh, and was just robbed of that whole entire experience. And then, you know, you just fall off and you're asked out. I, I feel like I kind of got to do it backwards in a little way. In a way, I got a time to learn a skill, develop it, uh, give myself the type of job security that I could travel anywhere with while at the same exact time, like, pursuing music. And I think Premrock also falls into that category. And I was joking with him when he dropped his song with Evidence. I was like, yeah, you know, I know you're a bartender, but you're going to get an early retirement. <laughs> Crazy track, by the way. way too. Yeah, insane, yo. Dope, dope. Evidence beats are always great, but that that was different. Was there much left on the cutting room floor from your sessions putting together this album? Mm-hmm. Nah, I don't, I don't think so. I think because, uh, in a way, yeah, but I think everything that was meant to be used got used. Right. Yeah, and there, you know, there might be one or two tracks that didn't get used, but I feel like even if they didn't, like those vocals don't, those beats might. We're we're already talking about doing a sequel, you know, like not saying that we're putting any date on it, but we're kind of in the process of gathering beats and figuring out who we're gonna want to get on it. And I don't want to like count any chickens before it hatches, but between all the people that me and him know together. And like, if you think about people that both of us might have worked with over time, we're bringing the big guns out. Oh man, you know, and like it's crazy because we were talking about like, yo, we should do a collab with me. I'm just gonna use a variable X and X, <laughs> and I'm like, yo, this was set shit on fire, but it's my job to figure out the common ground that ties the three of us together. Because we're all three different artists. But if people are able to fill in the X variable and the X variable, just based on people, you know, no no educated guesses, but just based on people that we have histories of working with, it will be a really crazy track. So we are kind of getting the beats together and just like I'm, I'm right in here and there. Like there's no pressure or anything, but it is something that we want to do. And that's something that we are going to try to get done before the year is up. Dope dope well you've mentioned music what about future visuals and support of this album can we expect any more yeah definitely i'm just like in the process of um before like i was super into the whole first off shout out to Lil b big bro you know like learned a lot about just shooting videos where you're at just being where you're at having fun you know what i'm saying and i took that route for the long time just to get the music out there. But I feel that now I'm trying to think a little bit more about how I present these visuals and, you know, the locations that I shoot them in and trying to do it a little bit differently. But I do have a couple of ideas. It's just a matter of uh, I need I, I can't do it all on my own. So I'm in the process of trying to get the right people. A friend of mine has a studio with lighting and a couple of different things I got in mind. And I also would love to try to get some animation done for some of the feature tracks, you know, but yeah. 
AJ Swade, I appreciate you joining us on this episode of Fly Fidelity, man. It's been an absolute pleasure being able to navigate your career and talk about this brand new album, which, in my opinion, I think is already album of the year, man. So big up. Yo, thank you. I appreciate y'all. I'm in good company being interviewed on this on this podcast. So shout outs to the Fly Fidelity podcast. Shout outs to Wales, to the UK. Big up. You already know. I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people saw you with me where you were.